Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking about a really important issue in contemporary American life, American politics, American constitution, but also one that has been important really since the time of the American founding, a kind of timeless questions of the relationship between church and state, between politics and religion, and what those mean for our American constitution. Joined for this conversation today by an old friend, old personal friend and friend of the Ashbrook Center and a friend of many of our listeners as well, Professor Adam Carrington. Adam teaches politics at Hillsdale College in Michigan. And Adam is the author of a number of wonderful and important articles and books and book chapters, including his book, on Supreme Court Justice Stephen Fields' jurisprudence entitled Stephen Fields' Cooperative Constitution of Liberty. Let me recommend that book to our listeners. If you have an interest in the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, the Supreme Court, and important justices that maybe you've heard of but don't know enough about, that's definitely Justice Stephen Fields. And that is absolutely, uh, Adam's book is probably the definitive study of that justice's jurisprudence. So let me let me recommend that book to our listeners. Adam Carrington, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. It's always a pleasure to be here, Jeff. Thanks for having me back. Um, politics and religion. Those are the two things you're not supposed to talk about in polite company. <laughs> so I guess we'll be a little impolite today <laughs> and talk about them. In particular their relationship in the U.S. Constitution. And of course, most people, I think, turn for, you know, where do they turn in the text of the Constitution to find those questions? Probably the First Amendment, which says, I think, that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Um, it seems it's a pretty short phrase, but it has engendered a lot of controversy in American constitutional thinking and for the Supreme Court. Maybe we can start with this. Where do we stand today in the Supreme Court's thinking on the First Amendment and particularly the religion clauses? That's obviously a focal point of many of the ways this debate is manifesting itself. And I should say, I should, I should thank Ashlyn that I have this interest because I was both a political science and a religion major at that institution. So I, I guess I couldn't talk to anyone about what I was studying politely. but uh, <laughs> And yet you managed. <laughs> I, so, so somehow. Um, so I, but I think I'll start with the, the free exercise clause, because I think the debate lines at least are more clear there. 
the obvious argument is there's sort of two ways that religious uh, views or religion can manifest. One is belief and the other is practice. And from the start, and this can go back to the earliest times with the court and others, that the idea is that you have absolute freedom of belief. You can believe anything you want, really, and not be legally attacked for it or, or reprimanded or punished or in any way, shape or form. The real question has been action, religious worship or living out your life in public in relation to religion. And that's the real source of the debate historically and even today. And there's two lines that have really been drawn out. And these really go back to a 1990 Supreme Court case, Employment Division of Oregon v. Smith, which was about Native American uh, men that were fired from their job for consuming peyote. Uh, but the peyote was being used as part of a ritual for their religious beliefs and then were denied religious uh, or unemployment benefits. And they argued that the free exercise clause should be an exemption to the normal criminal laws about drug use. And on one side, you had Justice Scalia giving, I think, one of the main camps of interpretation that really denied them this special exemption because it said generally the free exercise clause is kind of like an equal protection clause meaning that religion can't be targeted for special disfavor special discrimination but if you have a law that's generally applicable that's usually okay so an example would be if you ban wine all wine consumption on sunday that may disfavor religion in in particular application, but it applies to everyone, so it might it's probably going to be okay. As opposed to a law that says you can't drink wine on Sundays if you believe it's a means of God's grace to you or something that would be targeting. So, okay. so, so sort of equal protection. Uh, the other argument that was made by Justice O'Connor, Sandra Day O'Connor, in that same case, and has many defenders up to today, is that. The free exercise clause gives special protection to religious exercise and puts the burden of proof on the government to, in any way, shape, or form, uh, infringe on the practice or exercise of religion. Sometimes government can still do it if they have a, 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 a compelling reason, but that this is a sort of special carve out because of the importance of religion. And so even up to today, and this is a thing that cuts across left and right, but especially the American right even doesn't completely agree on this interpretation. Is it more Scalia's equal protection in general, don't target to discriminate religion, or is it a special set of protections where the normal law can even be accepted in in the defense of religion so that that's the main i, I know that took a minute but uh i, I think that that sets yeah, up the real debate so, but that's now. helpful to understand yeah. and it really as you say it goes back to this 1990 case of oregon v smith and then i suppose the argument goes all the way back to the the american founding what did the founding generation understand or what did the founding fathers intend when they put free exercise in there but at least right. as you say there's sort of two clear camps on the supreme court and in the federal courts over the meaning of that phrase. What about the Establishment Clause? <laughs> I, I love giving uh, the case uh, Sherbert v. Verner 
to my students and giving them one of the concurrences. And because one of the concurrences, that was actually a free exercise clause case in the 1960s, but the justice, one of the concurring opinions, the justice says, we've got a problem where the establishment clause is such a mess in the way we're interpreting and understanding it. It's so inconsistent that it's actually inhibiting our ability to interpret the free exercise clause well. So because the free exercise clause is saying that there is some protection for religious liberty and the establishment clause says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And the debate is basically we don't seem to have a clear idea of what it means to establish a religion, what public role there is there for religion at all. You have some that want a complete separation of church and state as, as institutions, those who want a complete separation of religion and politics, which is even more expansive, and then all sorts of gradations of some uh, public displays, but not others, and all sorts of different principles. So it's not a coincidence that just a few years ago, there was an establishment clause case about a World War I cross uh, a, a monument that was at a at a uh, uh, at a Maryland um, uh, 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 grave site, and you had seven different opinions written by nine justices. There, there just is not a lot wow. of agreement on that basis, and therefore I, I hesitate to start even laying out all the different ones quite yet, because it runs the gamut from no role of religion in public life to merely saying the church can't be the state and the state can't be the church and sort of everywhere in between. All right. So we've got this. Um, and and man, it's the very first thing of the First Amendment, right? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And what you're telling us is right now it's a mess. The court's understanding is a mess. It's really unclear. Um, maybe you can wade in a little bit, though, in trying to help us understand what are the, even if there are hopefully not seven different opinions, although seven different opinions by justices, but seven different views. What are the two or three major views about the meaning of Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion? Right. And I, I think these have gotten at least clarified a little bit in some of the school funding cases that have been coming out recently, Carson v. Macon and, and, and some of those. But I think one of the views that may be starting to coalesce, although I, I, I hesitate to really say it is for sure, is the idea that um, government uh, cannot do anything to help or hinder religion at all, and therefore must be effectively secular as a way of not intruding in any way, of not making anyone feel uncomfortable regarding any public expressions of religion or any funding that might go to religion. Uh, that's one of the major views. I think one of the other major views is the idea of neutrality with regard to religion and irreligion. So that if you, as the government, are offering a general benefit to the public or to schools or to parents, and that can go to uh, religious institutions or non-religious institutions, as long as it's generally applicable, again, to all of them. And then I'd say the third, that's sort of about funding, 
is the idea that um, displays of religion are acceptable if they are longstanding, historical, and traditional, and not overly sectarian in how they're displayed. So a cross being a little more of a generic religious symbol, and if it's longstanding. So, so those are some of the broader views that I think, if you wanted to say that the camps have some some definition to them in in conversation with and distinction to each other those i think are some of the three of the biggest all right so let's take something that we all experience probably every year in our towns which is in the town square or somewhere else come christmas time there'll be some kind of christmas display and as you know from teaching this uh, the Supreme Court cases, the Supreme Court has issued a number of opinions on whether towns are permitted under the First Amendment to put up Christmas displays. If you take these three particular camps, what's the position of the Supreme Court right now on towns putting up Christmas displays? Can they do it? And if so, what kind of displays can they put up? This this was really more of a live issue in the 1980s. That's where a lot of those particular cases came out. And the court tended to uh, have some, I, I think, fairly complicated circumstance-based rules on this, where they would take the idea that, yes, it is possible to have a display like a, a, a manger scene if um, it is uh, longstanding, historically the case. If it is not alone, so there were some times it was upheld uh, where if there was also a, you know, Santa and reindeer and uh, a menorah and uh, a number of other kinds of displays. Uh, now, I will say, I have to say this, Justice Scalia once mocked this and said it made the court seem like interior decorators in how they and <laughs> how they laid this uh, across. But I think the idea is that it, it, it the and I think a similar thing came out in the in the 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s with the Ten Commandments, where the idea was if there is a historical basis to this, um, if there can be some kind of secular purpose attached to it, uh, and and if it is part of a larger display. Then it's possible that the, that that the court would, would would accept that, and I, I say that to be a little hesitant because for a long time there was what was called the Lemon Test, uh, Lemon v. Kurtzman, which said that any religious display has to have a secular purpose, it has to be neutral in a certain way, and all these other criteria. But the court just within the last two years has repudiated that and said that didn't work. We're not going to do it. So I would say. Uh, even these religious displays may be up for some debate, but historically, if you go back to those 1980s cases, that's the basic criteria that they tried to lay out. So we we had a case, Lemon v. Kurtzman, as you said, in the early 70s that tried to clean up the mess, but obviously it didn't clean up the mess because the court said it's too messy. We're getting rid of that. Um, yes. <laughs> where are we now if we're not seeing a lot of cases involving manger scenes at Christmas? Where are we now seeing cases and issues for the Establishment Clause? The main issue has been, you're right, in the 1980s, it was, it was. Uh, in fact, I think the way to lay this out is almost decade by decade. The 1980s was Christmas displays. The 1990s was 
school prayer, or at least the last parts of school prayer. I know some of that came back in the 60s, but uh, school prayer, the 2000s was the Ten Commandments. And, and now we've sort of moved into the question of government funding. That's been the real place that this has been a consistent debate over the last decade plus. And that is where the government may offer a benefit to schools, or it may offer vouchers, a voucher system that actually even goes back to an Ohio case, uh, just a little north of you all up in Cleveland, the Cleveland voucher case uh, that came out my uh, my 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 uh, senior year of high school, and uh, and the whole question being, can the government provide funding? that some way, shape, or form ends up going to religious schools, either indirectly through the parents in a voucher program, or if they apply for a benefit, a, a Christian school or something applies for a benefit that's generally applicable to all private schools or or all schools in general. And at, with that, interestingly, the court has been very amenable to that. And they've been very amenable to that in the way that they combine the way they read the Establishment Clause with religious liberty, because what they basically said is, if we're going to make the Free Exercise Clause work, then the government would actually be in some ways violating not just that, but even implicitly the Establishment Clause if they refused to treat religion similar to all others and all other comers or allow religious parents to use their vouchers the way they wanted to. And so that's been a way that they've said that doesn't violate the establishment clause, but it doesn't violate it to try to make it in line with claims of religious liberty on the other side. I see. So the argument would be if if the government's going to provide a, a I'll call it a five thousand dollar voucher or something for kids to take to go to any school for the purpose of education. So it's a secular purpose. Um, if the kid goes to a, a, a religious school, it's okay because it's helping their free exercise of religion and to forbid them from bringing, taking it to their, uh, to a religious school would be to penalize religion, would be to not give people's religious exercise or even a religious school the same benefit as if they went to a secular private school. Yes. And, and that's where they don't want to establish a non-religion any more than officially establish a religion in that case. And that's been held up pretty well. You had, you had a, a case where uh, there, there was a general state program to provide uh, chopped up tires as uh, you, if people who have newer playgrounds see that that's usually laid down so that it gives, if kids fall, it's softer to fall on. And oh, yeah, like the rubber, the rubber mats. The rubber mats. And, and the idea was all if you're going to offer it. And, and here's the thing. The government isn't required to offer that in the first place. The courts have been clear on that. They're not required to support it. But the idea is when you commit as the government to providing this to schools, especially, or to parents, especially, then you're not requ you're required to not make distinctions among religious and non-religious or between types of religious persons. And so that the bit that benefit, it said uh, a Christian school should be able to apply for that benefit, just like parents should that are Christian should or, or, or Muslim or anything else should be able to spend uh, a voucher or a scholarship toward religious or non-religious schools if that's their choice. So that was controversial, as you said, in the 2010s. Now we're in 2023. Has the court 
Has it become uncontroversial on the court? Has it coalesced and has there been consensus around those kind of funding questions? I would say consensus as far as results, certainly not unanimity on the court. So there is still a faction on the court that consistently votes against these sorts of benefits and thinks that it is a violation of the Establishment Clause. But we've had a pretty consistent court majority most of the last even 20 years on on that question. Not not perfectly, but uh, very consistently over the last, especially five to 10, but even 20 years, where a majority has solidly seen at least those funding issues in that way. Before we continue with our conversation, I think it's important to take a moment and tell you about our undergraduate honors program in the liberal arts here at Ashland University. Hi, I'm Rich Police, Associate Director of Student Programs at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Scholar Program is an honors program located at Ashland University for undergraduate students with an interest in politics, history, and economics. Modeled after a classical liberal education, you will read the great texts, not textbooks. Your classes will be conversations, not lectures. Conversations with other students, with your professors, and with great thinkers and statesmen from throughout human history. If you or a young person you know are passionate about life's important questions, if you want an education that emphasizes discovery, if you value liberal education and the principles of freedom it upholds, then this is the place for you. To learn more, visit us online at ashbrookscholar.org. So, so if we can put the two clauses together, it almost sounds like what you're saying is the court is allowing more um, government funding for things that end up helping religion, so long as their purpose isn't to help religion, on the grounds that, well, that's part of people's free exercise of religion. So it's almost as though they're looking at the Establishment Clause in some ways through the lens of the free exercise clause. Right. And this is where it is those issues do kind of require putting them together as opposed to the questions of praying in schools or a public display of the Ten Commandments or Christmas, where it's the government deciding what it will do kind of for itself, even though that might have some effect on others. This is the question of what does it mean for the government to give privileges and benefits to institutions or citizens? And what are the rules within the question of religious liberty and within the question of establishment that it has to follow in doing so? And this is where I think the idea is don't allow the establishment clause to become a backdoor religious discrimination clause. And therefore, that's why they end up putting the religious liberty or free exercise question with the establishment clause when benefits are at stake as opposed to just public prayers or, or other things like that. So is it pretty well settled that I'm thinking some of our listeners might be thinking about um, issues that have been around a long time? So, for example, in God we trust on coins. Is that pretty well settled now that the Supreme Court will say that's not a violation of the Establishment Clause? There was a case that went up to the Supreme Court in 2004, the New Dow case, that was asking that. And the courts basically punted. They said that, 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 that there couldn't be a lawsuit, that the person wrongly sued. They didn't have standing to sue, meaning you know, a court always has to decide first 
does it have a right to hear the case before it can decide the case itself? Um, and and so th th there's never been a direct case on this. I will conjecture that the fact that uh, I would go back to uh, uh, two cases, Marsh v. Chambers from 1983, which was about legislative prayers in a legislative assembly in this case, in that case, Nebraska, and a 2014 case, Town of Greece v. Galloway, which was about prayers at at, at uh, city council meetings. In both cases, that religious, those religious displays were upheld on both traditional grounds. They've always been done. There's a long history of them. It would be hard to believe that the American founders would have been against it, given those longstanding practices and the idea that uh, to some degree, they're not too uh, they're they're done by the individuals themselves, not necessarily institutionally enabled, but not uh, 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 you know uh, demanded. Uh, and and I think if that's the case, that at least the current court would be fine with under God in the pledge, or in God we trust on on coinage, based on those criteria. Uh, I don't know if I would have answered the same thing if that had come up in say the 1990s. But I think the current court is is much more amenable to as long as it's a long historical practice that isn't coercing any one particular person to say or do something religious, but just makes them be there for it in the presence of it. Uh, that that I think is at least acceptable to the court right now. So, for example, in the under God and the pledge, as long as students don't have to say that part of the pledge or don't have to be compelled to say the pledge, they can be in a room where everybody else is saying um, under God and the court says that's fine. And actually, there's a precedent for that that's direct. I, I, under God, I kind of have to guess based on the the uh, like cases, analogous cases. But in, in 1940, uh, Minersville uh, School District versus Gobitis, the court had forced Jehovah's Witnesses' children who were against saying the pledge to say it or face school expulsion. Three years later in West Virginia v. Barnett, the court overturned itself and said, it's not that you, and this wasn't a question of, of can you have the pledge said in school? It was making people who had religious objections to it say it. And as far back as 1943, the court said that that violates free exercise of religion and free speech, actually, to make someone say something they don't believe. But that's very different than the government saying a public official saying it uh, and the presence of others. All right. What I'm sure some of our listeners will be thinking this is really interesting. There have been a couple of recent cases that they might be thinking about. I'm thinking, for example, of what people have called the praying football coach case. What happened in that particular case? To my mind, that's one of the most recent um, establishment clause or free exercise religion cases. Yes. Yeah, so you had a football coach and the thing to know about he was a public school football coach. And that matters because he's considered an employee of the state a state actor so therefore when he acts at least in his public capacity he is that the state acting uh, for those who are public school teachers or administrators my father was one uh very aware of that that that's part of the job and he would after after football games pray at the 50 yard line he was joined by other students uh, at one point he did sort of talk to them 
although he discontinued that and really just prayed after a bit. And the school, afraid of establishment clause violation issues, asked him not to, and then when he refused to, to do so, fired him. So he sued, and the court decided in his favor, and the argument was sort of a combination of that uh, that he is not necessarily acting at every moment, including after a football game, in his capacity as as as, as a state official and coach. You know, if, if if other coaches can text on the side to their wives, be home soon, um, then these kind of actions would be permissible. Uh, he was not coercing any students to join him. It was completely voluntary. And therefore, the idea was the state can't dictate either his religious beliefs or with these limits, his religious practices uh, to do so would be to not allow religious persons to participate in public jobs on the same terms and the same level as non-religious persons. So his right to do so now, it isn't limitless. Like I said, if he had been Fought, you know, kicking students off the team for not joining him to pray or something like that. I think the court clearly says that would be violating others' religious liberty. But in this case, he's allowed to do it. And I actually heard, uh, uh, I think, got his job back. If I if I if I saw a recent headline, All right, right okay. as as a result. So, hmm. yeah. um, Adam, why are we in this mess? Even if even if we've gotten some clarity, as you say, and the court has gotten clearer on some issues like government money going toward religious purposes or to religious people, and then they carry out religious practices with the money, they seem, as you say, to be more and more favorable to that, thinking that's okay. It still is true, as you said, that there's a lot of unclarity. I'll call it a mess if you won't. But um, why are we in this mess? That is a question that I think partakes of even a bigger issue, which is, um, you know, for a lot of world history, the politics and religion were basically one. To be a citizen of a particular city was to also be committed to the worship of the gods of that city, if you go back to ancient Greek times. Um, and then even when you get to medieval times with the after the creation of Christianity or after the establishment of Christianity, you have a very tight relationship between uh, the, the, the church and the state and very much of a uh, state religions. America is different. Uh, America is unique in distinguishing church and state at a level and to a degree that in the past was not the case. But at the same time, America has not denied the importance of religion in public life, in public expression, as part of the education of citizens. And when you acknowledge both, I think actually a great example of this is to go back to the Northwest Ordinance, where Article 3 talks about religion, morality, and knowledge is essential for good government and the happiness of mankind. So there is a public role for religion. They turn right before that in Article 1 and say there's freedom of religious belief and practice. And I think one reason we have a mess is there was always going to be a little bit of a tension there between 
the separation of church and state as institutions, religious liberty, yet a public role of some kind for religion. But I think uh, there, that, that was alleviated by a kind of consensus on what the general boundaries of that were, and that consensus has broken down. One, as we have lost our own knowledge of our history. Two, as America has become more secular and religiously diverse, so those who are religious, there's even more diversity. There are more people that aren't religious at all. And those developments, especially in the 20, 21st century, and I think a lack of historical knowledge has created a kind of difficulty uh, in, in, in trying to adjudicate how exactly do we respect religious liberty, respect a public role for religion at the same time? Uh, and, and I think uh, all those have, have contributed to make, and I am very willing to call it a mess. It, it is it is a mess. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, Well, all right. If we're in this situation, if there is a, almost, you say, almost an inherent tension or difficulty in America that did not exist in, in previous political societies, because of our commitment to religious freedom and not having an established religion, but also seeing the importance of religion in shaping the character of people. Um, and then we had Supreme Court justices who had very different views from different schools of thought, as you said, maybe coming together a little bit, but still from different points of view. What is your, if I can ask you this, What's your prediction for the future on the Establishment Clause? What issues are, do you think are going to be important? And how do you th think the Supreme Court is going to rule on those issues? That's a great question. And the Ten Commandments could come back up. Uh, the, the state of Texas is considering a law requiring the Ten Commandments to be placed in all classrooms. And I can assure you that will be a Supreme Court case. I would put a lot of money if I was a betting man on that. Uh, so what's past is prologue sometimes, but I will I will say that if the current court holds, in other words, the current orientation holds, I think that you will continue to see the equal treatment of religious entities for general benefits, what we've already talked about. I think you're going to see a greater consistency in permitting public displays of religion as long as they're not coercive. But what I think I'm not entirely sure of is to what degree, on what basis will that be? Because I think a lot of it, you, you have a, a lot of what are called originalists or textualists on the court right now, and they're big on not so much defending a practice because it's intrinsically good or bad. They seem to want to leave that to the legislative branch. But uh, the question of historical practice, that's going to be, I think, big going forward. If there is a history traditionally of certain kinds of religious displays, religious utterances, religious supports or lacks of supports, look for that to be the main issue. And if there is a good history of that, that we have a tradition or history of of you know public days of 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 thanksgiving or or public proclamations that happen each year on on thanksgiving day or something like that i think those are fairly safe because they have a long history uh and i think that's going to be the real battle line going forward but i think the court is going to become more permissive and that's going to become sort of the standard by which they judge whether religions are acceptable 
What about, that's on the Establishment Clause side, on the religious liberty side, the free exercise side. What do you think the issues uh, of the future are going to be? Are we going to have religious liberty cases in schools? What religious freedom students have? What religious uh, freedom teachers have? How about in workplaces? Or will it be somewhere else, do you think these cases will arise? Uh, probably all of the above. And one of the places we're now starting to actively work this out is how questions of religious liberty meet the uh the 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 rights that the court has established regarding um uh, uh same-sex marriage uh, uh transgenderism uh some you know issues of sex and sexuality which um so so uh, the the court is trying to work out the more that it has carved out rights or at least recognized that they that it believes their rights in in certain areas those have to be put in conversation with already existing established rights. So what to what degree are you do you need to protect the rights of religious people who may object to uh, some of these these issues or certain actions related to these issues? And to what degree do the do the rights being claimed on the other side deserve respect regardless of contrary beliefs? So I think that's going to be a big deal. Uh, I think as uh, it seems that we're on a kind of trend of greater secularization, or at least more people that don't identify as religious, I think that therefore, uh, uh, whereas it used to be fairly easy to get religious or get accommodations for not wanting to work on Sunday or uh, because you wanted to go to your house of worship if you're a Christian or uh, not being forced to do maybe certain other things, that's going to become more of a battle as well. And that's where this debate going back to Smith, uh, the Smith case that I talked about at the beginning, the degree to which the court maintains uh, the idea that protecting religious liberty is a matter of just not treating religious people differently versus giving them special exemptions because of their religious belief is going to be a pretty big deal as far as how broadly religious liberty is defined versus how the other interest rights and powers of society may be able to trump those. Well, it sounds like we've, as we've had since the American founding until now, we'll continue to have a lot of uh, enduring questions, uh, disagreements, and even disputes over the meaning of the First Amendment religion clauses. But Adam, thank you for taking so much for taking the time today to help us clarify some of those, illuminate some of those, and even offer some predictions for our listeners. Appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Oh, always a pleasure. Thank you guys for all the great work you do uh, at the Ashbrook Center and with the podcast. And uh, I, I know you mentioned before, I'm a product of uh, the Ashbrook Center, and I, I can't uh, uh, say enough about um, the fact that the fact that I get to contribute to these kinds of conversations really began in earnest with the opportunities that I received there, and classes with you, classes with others there, and 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 uh, just happy to be part of the American conversation going forward on these issues. Well, thank you so much again for joining us today on the American Idea. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more 
or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.